Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 3, The Courtship. Four of them met in the great council room of the castle. Prince Humperdinck, his confidant, Count Rugen, his father, Agent King Lotharian, and Queen Bella, his evil stepmother. Queen Bella was shaped like a gumdrop and colored like a raspberry. She was easily the most beloved person in the kingdom and had been married to the king long before he began mumbling. Prince Humperdinck was but a child then, and since the only stepmothers he knew were the evil ones from stories, he always called Bella that, or E.S. for short. All right, the prince began when they were all assembled. Who do I marry? Let's pick a bride and get it done. Agent King Lotharian said, I've been thinking it's really getting to be about time for Humperdinck to pick a bride. He didn't actually so much say that as mumble it. I being mumble mumble, humble mumble, emma mumble. Queen Bella was the only one who bothered ferreting out his meanings anymore. You couldn't be righter, dear, he said, and she patted his royal robes. What did he say? He said whoever we decided on would be getting a thunderously handsome prince for a lifetime companion. Tell him he's looking quite well himself, the prince returned. We've only just changed Miracle Men, the queen said. That accounts for the improvement. You mean he fired Miracle Max, Prince Humperdinck said. I thought he was the only one left. No, we found another one up in the mountains, and he's quite extraordinary. Old, of course, but then who wants a young Miracle Man? Tell him I changed Miracle Men, King Lotharian said. It came out, tell mumble, mumble, mumble. What did he say? The prince wondered. He said a man of your importance couldn't marry just any princess. True, true, Prince Humperdinck said. He sighed deeply. I suppose that means Norina. That would certainly be a perfect match politically, Count Rugen allowed. Princess Norina was from Gilder, the country that lay just across Florin Channel. In Gilder, they put it differently. For them, Florin was a country on the other side of the channel of Gilder. In any case, the two countries have stayed alive over the centuries mainly by warring on each other. There have been the Olive War, the tuna fish discrepancy, which almost bankrupted both nations, the Roman Rift, which did send them both into insolvency, only to be followed by the Discord of the Emeralds, in which they got rich again, chiefly by banding together for a brief period and robbing everyone within sailing distance. I wonder if she hunts, though, said Humperdinck. I don't care so much about personality, just thought her good with a knife. I saw her several years ago, Queen Bella said. She seemed lovely, though hardly muscular. I would describe her more as a knitter than a doer. But again, lovely. Skin, asked the prince. Marbleish, answered the queen. Lips? Number or color, asked the queen. Color, E.S. Rosish. Cheeks the same. Eyes largish. One blue, one green. Hmm, said Humperdinck. And form? Hourglasses, always clothed divinishly, and of course, famous throughout Gilder for the largest hat collection in the world. Well, let's bring her over here for some state occasions and have a look at her, said the prince. Isn't there a princess in Gilder that will be about the right age, said the king. It came out, Mum says gullible, 
Bumble Mumble. Are you never wrong? said Queen Bella, and she smiled into the weakening eyes of her ruler. What did he say? wondered the prince. That I should leave this very day with an invitation, replied the queen. So began the great visit of the Princess Narina. Me again. Of all the cuts in this version, I feel most justified in making this one. Just the chapters on Wailing and Moby Dick can be omitted by all but the most punishment-loving readers. So the packing scenes in Morgenstern details here are really best left alone. That's what happens for the next 56 and a half pages of The Princess Bride. Packing. I include unpacking scenes in the same category. What happens is just this. Queen Bella packs most of her wardrobe, 11 pages, and travels to Gilder, 2 pages. In Gilder, she unpacks, 5 pages, then tenders the invitation to Princess Narina, 1 page. Princess Narina accepts, 1 page. Then Princess Narina packs all her clothes and hats, 23 pages. And, together, the Queen and Princess travel back to Florence for the annual celebration of the founding of Florence City. One page. They reach King Lotharian's castle, where Princess Narina has shown her quarters, a half a page, and unpacks all the same clothes and hats that we'd just seen her pack one and a half pages before. Twelve pages. It's a baffling passage. I spoke to Professor Bongiorno of Columbia University, the head of their Florinese department, and he said this was the most deliciously satiric chapter in the entire book. Morgenstern's point, apparently, being simply to show that although Florin considered itself vastly more civilized than Gilder, Gilder was, in fact, the far more sophisticated country, as indicated by the superiority in number and quality of the ladies' clothes. I'm not about to argue with a full professor, but if you ever have a really unbreakable case of insomnia, do yourself a favor and start reading chapter 3 of the uncut version. Anyway, Things pick up a bit once the prince and princess meet and spend the day. Narina did have, as advertised, marbleish skin, rosish lips and cheeks, largest eyes, one blue, one green, hourglassish form, and easily the most extraordinary collection of hats ever assembled. Wide-brimmed and narrow, some tall, some not, some fancy, some colorful, some plaid, some plain. She doted on changing hats at every opportunity. When she met the prince, she was wearing one hat. And when he asked her for a stroll, she excused herself, shortly to return wearing another, equally flattering. Things went on like this throughout the day, but it seems to me to be a bit too much court etiquette for modern readers. So it's not until the evening meal that I return to the original text. Dinner was held in the great hall of Lotharian's castle. Ordinarily, they would have all supped in the dining room, but for an event of this importance, that place was simply too small. So tables were placed end to end along the center of the great hall, an enormous drafty spot that was given to being chilly even in the summertime. There were many doors and giant entranceways, and the wind gusts sometimes reached gale force. This night was more typical than less. The winds whistled constantly, and the candles constantly needed relighting, and some of the more daringly dressed women shivered. But Prince Humperdinck didn't seem to mind, and in Florin, if he didn't, you didn't either. At 8.23, there seemed every chance of a lasting alliance starting between Florin and Gilder. At 8.24, the two nations were very close to war. What happened was simply this. At 8.23 and 5 seconds, the main course of the evening was ready for serving. The main course was essence of brandy pig, and you need a lot of it to serve 500 people. So in order to hasten the serving, a giant double door that led from the kitchen to the great hall was opened. The giant double door was on the north end of the room. 
The door remained open throughout what followed. The proper wine for essence of brandy pig was in readiness behind the double door that led eventually to the wine cellar. This double door was opened at 8.23 in 10 seconds in order that the dozen wine stewards could get their kegs quickly to the eaters. This double door, it might be noted, was at the south end of the room. At this point, an unusually strong crosswind was clearly evident. Prince Humperdinck did not notice, because at that moment, he was whispering with the Prince Marina of Gilder. He was cheek to cheek with her, his head under her wide-brimmed blue-green hat, which brought out the exquisite color in both of her largish eyes. At 8.23 and 20 seconds, King Lotharium made his somewhat belated entrance to the dinner. He was always belated now, had been for years, and in the past, people had been known to starve before he got there. But of late, Mills just began without him, which was fine with him since his new miracle man had taken him off Mills anyway. The king entered through the king's door, a huge hinge thing that only he was allowed to use. It took several servants in excellent condition to work it. It should be reported that the king's door was always in the east side of any room, since the king was, of all people, closest to the sun. What happened then has been variously described as a norther or southwester, depending on where you were seated in the room where it struck, but all hands agree on one thing. At 8.23 and 25 seconds, it was pretty gusty in the Great Hall. Most of the candles lost their flames and toppled, which was only important because a few of them fell, still burning, into the small kerosene cups that are placed here and there across the banquet table so the essence of branding pig could be properly flaming when served. Servants rushed in from all over to put out the flames, and they did a good enough job, considering that everything in the room was flying this way, that way, fans and scarves and hats. Particularly, the hat of Princess Narina. It flew off to the wall behind her, where she quickly retrieved it and put it properly on. That was at 8.23 and 50 seconds. It was too late. At 8.23.55, Prince Humperdinck rose roaring, the veins in his thick neck etched like hemp. There were still flames in some places, and her redness reddened his already blood-filled face. He looked, as he stood there, like a barrel on fire. He then said to Princess Narina of Gilder, the five words that brought the nations to the brink. Madam, feel free to flee. And with that, he stormed from the Great Hall. The time was then 8.24. Prince Humperdinck made his angry way to the balcony above the Great Hall and stared down at the chaos. The fires were still in places flaming red. Guests were pouring out through the doors, and Princess Narina, hatted and faint, was being carried by her servants far from view. Queen Bella finally caught up with the prince, who stormed along the balcony, clearly not yet in control. I do wish you hadn't been quite so blunt, Queen Bella said. The prince whirled on her. I'm not marrying any bald princess, and that's that. No one would know, Queen Bella explained. She has hats even for sleeping. I would know, cried the prince. Did you see the candlelight reflecting off her skull? But things would have been so good with Gilder, the queen said, addressing herself half to the prince, half to Count Rugen, who now joined them. Forget about Gilder. I'll conquer it sometime. I've been wanting to ever since I was a kid, anyway. He approached the queen. People snicker behind your back when you have a bald wife, and I can do without that, thank you. You'll just have to find someone else. Who? Find me someone. She should just look nice, that's all. That Narina has no hair. King Lotharian said, puffing up to the others. Narumble mumble humble. 
Thank you for pointing that out, dear, said Queen Bella. I don't think Humperdinck will like that, said the king. Dumble, humble, mumble. Then Count Rugen stepped forward. You want someone who looks nice, but what if she's a commoner? The commoner the better, Prince Humperdinck replied, pacing again. What if she can't hunt, the count went on. I don't care if she can't spell, the prince said. Suddenly he stopped and faced them all. I'll tell you what I want, he began then. So tell me what you I won't even do it. I want someone who's so beautiful that when you see her, you say, wow, that Humperdinck must be some kind of fella to have a wife like that. Search the country, search the world, just find her. Count Rugen could only smile. She's already found, he said. It was dawn when the two horsemen reined in at the hilltop. Count Rugen rode a splendid black horse, large, perfect, powerful. The prince rode one of his whites. It made Rugen's mount seem like a plow puller. She delivers milk in the morning, Count Rugen said. And she is truly without question no possibility of error beautiful. She was something of a mess when I saw her, the Count admitted, but the potential was overwhelming. A milkmaid. The prince ran the words across his rough tongue. I don't know that I could wed one of them even under the best of conditions. People might snicker that she was the best I could do. True, the Count admitted. If you prefer, we can ride back to Florence City without waiting. We've come this far, the prince said. We might as well weigh. His voice quite simply died. I'll take her, he managed, finally, as Buttercup rose slowly by below them. No one will snicker, I think, the Count said. I must court her now, said the Prince. Leave us alone for a minute. He rode the white expertly down the hill. Buttercup had never seen such a giant beast, or such a rider. I am your Prince, and you will marry me, Humperdinck said. Buttercup whispered, I am your servant, and I refuse. I am your prince, and you cannot refuse. I am your loyal servant, and I just did. Refusal means death. Kill me, then. I am your prince, and I am not that bad. How could you rather be dead than married to me? Because, Buttercup said, marriage involves love, and that is not a pastime in which I excel. I, I tried once, and it went badly, and I am sworn never to love another. Love, said Prince Humperdinck. Who mentioned love? Not me, I can tell you. Look, there must always be a male heir to the throne of Florin. That's me. Once my father dies, there won't be an heir, just a king. That's me again. When that happens, I'll marry and have children until there's a son. So you can either marry me and be the richest and most powerful woman in a thousand miles and give turkeys away at Christmas and provide me a son, or you can die in terrible pain in the very near future. Make up your own mind. I'll never love you. I wouldn't want it if I had it. Then by all means, let us marry. Chapter 4. The Preparations I didn't even know this chapter existed until I began the good parts version. All my father used to say at this point was, what with one thing or another, three years passed. And then he'd explain how the day came when Buttercup was officially introduced to the world as the coming queen. And how the great square of Florence City was filled as never before, awaiting her introduction. And by then, he was into the terrific business dealing with the kidnapping. Would you believe that in the original Morgenstern, this the longest single chapter in the book? 
15 pages about how Humperdinck can't marry a common subject. So they fight and argue with the nobles and finally made Buttercup Princess of Hammersmith, which was this little lump of land attached to the rear of King Lotharian's holdings. Then the Miracle Man began improving King Lotharian, and 18 pages were used up in describing the cures. Morgenstern hated doctors and was always bitter when they outlawed Miracle Men from working in Florin proper. In 72, Count him, 72 pages on the training of a princess. He follows Buttercup day to day, month to month, as she learned all the ways of curtsying and tea pouring and how to address visiting nabobs and all of that. All of this in a satiric vein, naturally, since Morgenstern hated royalty even more than doctors. But from a narrative point of view, in 105 pages, nothing happens. Except this. What with one thing or another? Three years passed. Chapter 5, The Announcement. So, um, this is me, not Morgenstern. This is actually me talking. I want to let y'all know that Chapter 5 is literally 114 pages long. Yeah, just just Chapter 5. So, obviously, Chapter 5 is not going to be read in one sitting. I hope you know that. I'm going to try and get it to a spot where it's good to stop, and then we'll continue it in the next episode. But it's 114 pages long. My Kindle says that um, this chapter will take four hours and three minutes to read. We'll see. The great square of Florence City was filled as never before, awaiting the introduction of Prince Humperdinck's bride-to-be, Prince Buttercup of Hammersmith. The crowd had begun forming some 40 hours earlier, but up to 24 hours before, there were still fewer than 1,000. But then... As the moment of introduction grew nearer, from across the country the people came. None had ever seen the princess, but rumors of her beauty were continual, and each was less possible than the one before. At noontime, Prince Humperdinck appeared at the balcony of his father's castle and raised his arms. The crowd, which by now was at the danger side, slowly quieted. There were stories that the king was dying, that he was already dead, that he had been dead long since, that he was fine. My people, my beloved, from whom we draw strength, today is a day of greeting. As you must have heard, my honored father's health is not what it once was. He is, of course, 97, so who can ask more? As you know, Florin needs a male heir. The crowd began to stir now. It was to be this lady they had heard so much about. In three months, our country celebrates its 500th anniversary. To celebrate that celebration, I shall, on that sundown, take from my wife the Princess Buttercup of Hammersmith. You do not know her yet, but you will meet her now. And he made a sweeping gesture, and the balcony door swung open, and Buttercup moved out beside him on the balcony. And the crowd, quite literally, gasped. The 21-year-old princess far surpassed the 18-year-old mourner. Her figure faults were gone. The two bony elbow having fleshed out nicely. The opposite pudgy wrist could not have been trimmer. Her hair, which was once the color of autumn, was still the color of autumn, except that before she attended it herself, whereas she now had five full-time hairdressers who managed things for her. This is long after hairdressers. In truth, ever since there have been women, there have been hairdressers. Adam being the first, although the King James scholars do their very best to muddy this point. 
Her skin was still wintry cream, but now with two handmaidens assigned to each appendage and four for the rest of her, it actually, in certain lights, seemed to provide her with a gentle, constantly, continually moving as she moved, glow. Prince Humperdinck took her hand and held it high, and the crowd cheered. That's enough. Mustn't risk overexposure, the prince said, and he started back in towards the castle. They have waited, some of them so long, Buttercup answered. I would like to walk among them. We do not walk among commoners unless it's unavoidable, the prince said. I have known more than a few commoners in my time, Buttercup told him. They will not, I think, harm me. And with that, she left the balcony, reappeared a moment later on the great steps of the castle, and, quite alone, walked open-armed down into the crowd. Wherever she went, the people parted. She crossed and recrossed the great square, and always, ahead of her, the people swept apart to let her pass. Buttercup continued, moving slowly and smiling, alone, like some land messiah. Most of the people there would never forget the day. None of them, of course, had actually ever been so close to perfection, and the great majority adored her instantly. There were, to be sure, some who, while admitting she was pleasing enough, were withholding judgment as for her quality as a queen. And, of course, there were some more who were frankly jealous. Very few of them hated her. And only three of them were planning to murder her. Buttercup naturally knew none of this. She was smiling, and when people wanted to touch her gown, well, let them. And when they wanted to brush their skin against hers, well, let them do that, too. She had studied hard to do things royally, and she wanted very much to succeed. So she kept her posture erect and her smile gentle and that her death was so close would have only made her laugh if someone had told her. But, in the farthest corner of the great square, in the highest building in the land, deep in the deepest shadow, the man in black stood waiting. His boots were black and leather, his pants were black and his shirt. His mask was black, blacker than raven, but blackest of all were his flashing eyes, flashing and cruel, and deadly. Buttercup was more than a little weary after her triumph. The touching of the crowds had exhausted her, so she rested a bit, and then, towards mid-afternoon, she changed into her riding clothes and went to fetch horse. This was the one aspect of her life that had not changed in the years preceding. She still loved to ride, and every afternoon, whether permitting or not, she rode alone for several hours in the wild land beyond the castle. She did her best thinking then. Not that her best thinking ever expanded horizons. Still, she told herself, she was not a dummy either. So as long as she kept her thoughts to herself, well, where was the harm? As she rode through woods and streams and heather, her brain was a world. The walk through the crowds had moved her, and in a way most strange. For even though she had done nothing for three years now but trained to be a princess and a queen, today was the first day she actually understood that it was all soon to be a reality. And I just don't like Humperdinck, she thought. It's not that I hate him or anything. I just never see him. He's always off someplace or playing in the zoo of death. To Buttercup's way of thinking, there was two main problems. One, was it wrong to marry without like? And two, if it was, was it too late to do anything about it? The answers to her way of thinking as she rode along were one, no, and two, yes. It wasn't wrong to marry someone you didn't like. It just wasn't right either. If the whole world did it, it wouldn't be so great, what with everyone kind of grunting at everybody else the years went by. 
But of course, not everybody did it. So forget about that. The answer to number two was even easier. She had given her word she would marry. That would have to be enough. True, he had told her quite honestly that if she said no, he would have her disposed of in order to keep respect for the crown at its proper level. Still, she could have, had she so chosen, said no. Everyone had told her, since she became a princess in training, that she was very likely the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, she was going to be the richest and most powerful as well. Don't expect too much from life, Buttercup told herself as she rode along. Learn to be satisfied with what you have. Dusk was closing in when Buttercup crested the hill. She was perhaps half an hour from the castle, and her daily ride was three quarters done. Suddenly, she reined horse, for standing in the dimness beyond was the strangest trio she had ever seen. The man in front was dark, Sicilian perhaps, with the gentlest face, almost angelic. He had one leg too short and the makings of a humpback, but he moved forward towards her with a surprising speed and nimbleness. The other two remained rooted. The second, also dark, probably Spanish, was as erect and slender as a blade of steel that was attached to his side. The third man, mustachioed, perhaps a Turk, was easily the biggest human being she had ever seen. A word, the Sicilian said, raising his arms. His smile was more angelic than his face. Buttercup halted. Speak. We're but poor circus performers, the Sicilian explained. It is dark and we are lost. We were told there was a village nearby that might enjoy our skills. You were misinformed, Buttercup told him. There was no one, not for many miles. Then there will be no one to hear your screams, the Sicilian said, and he jumped with frightening agility towards her face. That was all Buttercup remembered. Perhaps she did scream, but if she did, it was more from terror than anything else, because certainly there was no pain. His hands expertly touched places on her neck, and unconsciousness came. She awoke to the lapping of water. She was wrapped in a blanket, and the giant Turk was putting her in the bottom of a boat. For a moment, she was about to talk, but then, when they began talking, she thought it better to listen. And after she had listened for a moment, it got harder and harder to hear, because of the terrible pounding of her heart. I think you should kill her now, the Turk said. The less you think, the happier I'll be, the Sicilian answered. There was a sound of ripping cloth. What is that? the Spaniard asked. The same as I attached to her saddle, the Sicilian replied. Fabric from the uniform of an officer or gilder. I still think, the Turk began. She must be found dead on the gilder frontier or we will not be paid the remainder of our fee. Is that clear enough for you? just feel better when I know what's going on, that's all. The Turk mumbled. People are always thinking I'm so stupid because I'm big and strong and, and sometimes I drool a little when I get excited. The reason people think you're stupid, the Sicilian said, is because you are so stupid. It has nothing to do with your drooling. Then came the sound of a flapping of sail. Watch your head, the Spaniards cautioned, and then the boat was moving. The people of Florence will not take her death well, I shouldn't think. She's become beloved. There will be war, the Sicilian agreed, and we've been paid to start it. It's a fine line of work to be expert in. If we do this right, there will be a continual demand for our services. Well, I don't like it all that much, the Spaniard said. Frankly, I wish you had refused. The offer was too high. I don't like killing a girl, the Spaniard said. 
God does it all the time. If it doesn't bother him, don't let it worry you. Throughout all of this, Buttercup had not moved. The Spaniard said, let's just tell her we're taking her away for ransom. The Turk says, she's so beautiful and she'd go all crazy if she knew. She knows already, the Sicilian said. She's been awake for every word of this. Buttercup lay under the blanket, not moving. How could he have known that, she wondered. How can you be sure, the Spaniard asked. The Sicilian senses all, the Sicilian said. Conceited, Buttercup thought. Yes, very conceited, the Sicilian said. He must be a mind reader, Buttercup thought. Are you giving it full sail, the Sicilian said. As much as is safe, the Spaniard answered from the tiller. We have an hour on them, so no risk yet. It'll take our horse perhaps 27 minutes to reach the castle, a few minutes more for them to figure out what had happened, and, since we left an obvious trail, they should be after us within an hour. We should reach the cliffs in 15 minutes more, and, with any luck at all, the gilded frontier at dawn when she dies. Her body should be quite warm when the prince reaches her mutilated form. Only wish we could stay for his grief. It should be Hermeric. Why does he let me know his plans, Buttercup wondered. You're going back to sleep now, my lady, the Spaniard said, and his fingers were suddenly touching her temple, her shoulder, her neck, and she was unconscious again. Buttercup did not know how long she was out, but they were still in the boat when she blinked, the blanket shielding her. And this time, without daring to think, the Sicilian would have known it somehow, she threw the blanket aside and dove deep into the flooring channel. She stayed under for as long as she dared and then surfaced, starting to swim across the moonless water with every ounce of strength remaining in her. Behind her, in the darkness, there were cries. Go in, go in, from the Sicilian. Only dog paddle, from the Turk. You're better than I am, from the Spaniard. Buttercup continued to leave them behind her. Her arms ached from effort, but she gave them no rest. Her legs kicked and her heart pounded. I can hear her kicking, the Sicilian said. Veer left. Buttercup went into her breaststroke, silently swimming away. Where is she? shrieked the Sicilian. The sharks will get her. Don't worry, cautioned the Spaniard. Oh dear, I wish you hadn't mentioned that, thought Buttercup. Princess, the Sicilian called. Do you know what happens to sharks when they smell blood in the water? They go mad. There's no control in their wildness. They rip and shred and chew and devour, and, and I'm in a boat, princess, and there isn't any blood in the water now, so we're both quite safe. But there is a knife in my hand, my lady, and if you don't come back, I'll cut my arms and I'll cut my legs and I'll catch the blood in the cup and I'll fling it as far as I can and sharks can smell blood in the water for miles. And you won't be beautiful for long. Buttercup hesitated, silently treading water. Around her now, although it was surely her imagination, she seemed to be hearing the swish of giant tails. Come back, and come back now. There will be no other warning. Buttercup thought, if I come back, they'll kill me anyway, so what's the difference? The difference is, there he goes doing that again, thought Buttercup. He really is a mind reader. If you come back now, the Sicilian went on, I give you my word as a gentleman and assassin that you'll die totally without pain. I assure you, you'll get no such promise from the sharks. The fish sounds in the night were closer now. Buttercup began to tremble with fear. She was terribly ashamed of herself, but there it was. She only wished she could see for a moment if there were really sharks and if he would really cut himself. 
The Sicilian winced out loud. He just cut his arm, lady, the Turk cried out. He's catching the blood in the cup now. There must be a half inch of blood on the bottom. The Sicilian winced again. He cut his leg this time, the Turk went on. The cup is getting full. I don't believe them, Buttercup thought. There are no sharks in the water and there is no blood in his cup. My arm is back to throw, the Sicilian said. Call out your location or not, the choice is yours. I'm not making a peep, Buttercup decided. Farewell, from the Sicilian. There was a splashing sound of liquid landing on liquid. Then there came a pause. Then the sharks went mad. She does not get eaten by the sharks at this time, my father said. I looked up at him. What? You looked like you were getting too involved and bothered, so I thought I would let you relax. Oh, for Pete's sake, I said. You think I was a baby or something? What kind of stuff is that? I really sounded put out, but I'll tell you the truth. I was getting a little too involved, and I'm glad he told me. I mean, when you're a kid, you don't think. Well, since the book's called The Princess Bride, and since we're barely into it, obviously the author's not about to make shark kibble out of his leading lady. You get hooked on things when you're a youngster. So, to any youngster's reading, I'll simply repeat my father's words since they work to soothe me. She does not get eaten by the sharks at this time. Then the sharks went mad. All around her, Buttercup could hear them beeping and screaming and thrashing their mighty tails. Nothing could save me, Buttercup realized. I'm a dead cookie. Fortunately for all concerns, save the shark, it was around this time the moon came out. There she is, shouted the Sicilian, and like lightning, the Spaniard turned the boat, and as the boat drew close, the Turk reached out a giant arm, and then she was back in the safety of her murderers, while all around them, the sharks bumped each other in wild frustration. Keep her warm, the Spaniard said from the tiller, tossing his cloak to the Turk. Don't catch cold, the Turk said, wrapping Buttercup into the cloak's folds. Doesn't seem to matter all that much, she answered, seeing you're killing me at dawn. He'll do the actual work, the Turk said, indicating the Sicilian who was wrapping cloth around his cuts. We'll just hold you. Hold your stupid tongue, the Sicilian commanded. The Turk immediately hushed. I don't think he's so stupid, Buttercup said, and I don't think you're so smart either with all your throwing blood in the water. That's not what I would call grade A thinking. It worked, didn't it? You're back, aren't you? The Sicilian crossed towards her. Once women are sufficiently frightened, they'll scream. But I didn't scream. The moon came out, answered Buttercup somewhat triumphantly. The Sicilian struck her. Enough of that, the Turk said then. The tiny humpback looked dead at the giant. Do you want to fight me? I don't think you do. No, sir, the Turk mumbled. No, but don't use force. Please. Force is mine. Strike me if you feel the need. I won't care. The Sicilian returned to the other side of the boat. She would have screamed, he said. She was about to cry out. My plan was ideal as all my plans were ideal. It was the moon's ill timing that robbed me of perfection. He scowled unforgivingly at the yellow wedge above them. Then he stared ahead. There, the Sicilian pointed. The cliffs of insanity. And there they were rising straight and sheer from the water a thousand feet into the night. They provided the most direct route between Florin and Gilder, but no one had ever used them, sailing instead the long way, many miles around. Not that the cliffs were impossible to scale. 
Two men were known to have climbed them in the last century alone. Sail straight for the steepest part, the Sicilian commanded. The Spaniard said, I was. Buttercup did not understand. Going up the cliffs could hardly be done, she thought, and no one had ever mentioned secret passages through them. Yet here they were, sailing closer and closer to the mighty rocks, now surely less than a quarter mile away. For the first time, the Sicilian allowed himself a smile. All is well. I was afraid your little jaunt in the water was going to cost me too much time. I had allowed an hour of safety. There must still be 50 minutes of it left. We're miles ahead of anybody and safe, safe, safe. No one could be following us yet, the Spaniard asked. No one, the Sicilian assured him. It would be inconceivable. Absolutely inconceivable? Absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable, the Sicilian reassured him. Why do you ask? No reason, the Spaniard replied. It's only that I happen to look back and something's there. They all whirled. Something was indeed there. Less than a mile behind them, across the moonlight, was another sailing boat. Small, and painted what looked like black, with a giant sail that billowed black in the night, and a single man at the tiller. A man in black. The Spaniard looked at the Sicilian. It must just be some local fisherman out for a pleasure cruise alone at night through shark-infested waters. There's probably a more logical explanation, the Sicilian said, but since no one in Gilder could know yet what we've done and no one in Florin could have gotten here so quickly, he is definitely not, however much it might seem, following us. It is coincidence and nothing more. He's gaining on us, the Turk said. That is also inconceivable, the Sicilian said. Before I stole this boat we're in, I made many inquiries as to what was the fastest ship on all of Florin Channel and everyone agreed it was this one. You're right, the Turk agreed, staring back. He isn't gaining on us. He's just getting closer, that's all. It's the angle we're looking from and nothing more, said the Sicilian. Buttercup could not take her eyes from the great black cell. Surely the three men she was with frightened her. But somehow, for reasons she could never begin to explain, the man in black frightened her more. All right, look sharp, the Sicilian said then, just a drop of edginess in his voice. The cliffs of insanity were very close now. The Spaniard maneuvered the craft expertly, which was not easy, and the waves were rolling in towards the rocks now, and the spray was blinding. Buttercup shielded her eyes and put her head straight back, staring up into the darkness towards the top, which seemed shrouded and out of reach. Then the humpback bounded forward, and as the ship reached the cliff face, he jumped up, and suddenly there was a rope in his hand. Buttercup stared in silent astonishment. The rope, thick and strong, seemed to travel all the way up the cliffs. As she watched, the Sicilian pulled at the rope again and again and it held firm. It was attached to something at the top. A giant rock. A towering tree. Something. Fast now, the Sicilian ordered. If he's following us, which of course is not within the realm of human experience, but if he is... We've got to reach the top and cut the rope off before he can climb up after us. Climb, Buttercup said. I would never be able to. Hush, the Sicilian ordered her. Get ready, he ordered the Spaniard. Sink it, he ordered the Turk. And then everyone got busy. The Spaniard took a rope, tied Buttercup's hands and feet. The Turk raised a great leg and stomped down at the center of the boat, which gave way immediately and began to sink. 
Then the Turk went to the rope and took it in his hands. Load me, the Turk said. The Spaniard lifted Buttercup and draped her body around the Turk's shoulders. Then he tied himself to the Turk's waist. Then the Sicilian hopped, clung to the Turk's neck. All aboard, the Sicilian said. This was before trains, but the expression comes originally from carpenters loading lumber, and this was well after carpenters. With that, the Turk began to climb. It was at least a thousand feet, and he was carrying the three, but he was not worried. When it came to power, nothing worried him. When it came to reading, he got knots in the middle of his stomach, and when it came to writing, he broke out in a cold sweat, and when addition was mentioned, or worse, long division, he always changed the subject right away. But strength had never been his enemy. He could take the kick of a horse on his chest and not fall backwards. He could take a hundred pound flower sack between his legs and scissor it open without thinking. He had once held an elephant aloft using only the muscle in his back. But his real might lay in his arms. There had never, not in a thousand years, been arms to match Fezzik's. For that was his name. The arms were not only gargantuan and totally obedient and surprisingly quick, but they were also... And this is why he never worried. Tireless. If you gave him an axe and told him to chop down a forest, his legs might give out from having to support so much weight for so long. Or the axe might shatter from the punishment of killing so many trees. But Fezzik's arms will be as fresh tomorrow as today. And so, even with the Sicilian on his neck and the princess around his shoulders and the Spaniard at his waist, Fezzik did not feel in the least bit put upon. He was actually quite happy because it was only when he was requested to use his might that he felt that he wasn't a bother to anybody. Up he climbed, arm over arm, arm over arm. 200 feet now above the water, 800 feet now to go. More than any of them, the Sicilian was afraid of heights. All of his nightmares, and they were never far from him when he slept, dealt with falling. So, this terrifying ascension was most difficult for him, perched as he was on the neck of the giant or should have been most difficult, but he will not allow it. From the beginning, when as a child he realized his humped body would never conquer worlds, he relied on his mind. He trained it, fought it, brought it to heel. So now, 300 feet in the night and rising higher, while he should have been trembling, he was not. Instead, he was thinking of the man in black. There was no way anyone could have been quick enough to follow him. And yet, from some devil's world, that billowing black cell had appeared. How? How? The Sicilian flogged his mind to find an answer, but he found only failure. And while frustration, he took a deep breath and, in spite of his terrible fears, he looked back down towards the dark water. The man in black was still there, sailing like lightning towards the cliffs. He could not have been more than a quarter mile from them now. Faster, the Sicilian commanded. I'm sorry, the Turk answered meekly. I thought I was going faster. Lazy, lazy, spurred the Sicilian. I'll never improve, the Turk answered, but his arms began to move faster than before. I cannot see too well because your feet are locked around my face, he went on. So could you please tell me if we're halfway yet? A little over, I should think, said the Spaniard from his position around the giant's waist. You're doing wonderfully, Fezzik. Thank you, said the giant. And he's closing on the cliffs, added the Spaniard. No one had to ask who he was. 600 feet now. The arms continued to pull over and over. 620 feet. 650. Now faster than ever. 700. 
He's left his boat behind, the Spaniard said. He's jumped onto our rope. He's starting up after us. I can feel him, Bezik said. His body weight on the rope. He'll never catch up, the Sicilian cried. Inconceivable. You keep using that word, the Spaniard snapped. I don't think it means what you think it does. Let's check. Inconceivable. Not able of being imagined or grasped mentally. Unbelievable. So it is conceivable that the Duke could catch up with them. So Spaniard's right and the Sicilian is dumb. Well, he's not dumb, but in this he's wrong. How fast is he at climbing, Fezzik said. I'm frightened, was the Spaniard's reply. The Sicilian gathered his courage again and looked down. The man in black seemed almost to be flying. Already he had cut their lead a hundred feet, perhaps more. I thought you were supposed to be so strong, the Sicilian shouted. I thought you were this great mighty thing and yet he gains. I'm carrying three people, Fezzik explained. He only has himself and... Excuses are the refuge of cowards, the Sicilian interrupted. He looked down again. The man in black had gained another hundred feet. He looked up now. The cliff tops were beginning to come into view. Perhaps a hundred and fifty feet more and they were safe. Tied hand and foot, sick with fear, Buttercup wasn't sure what she wanted to happen. Except this much she knew. She didn't want to go through anything like it again. Fly, Fezzik! The Sicilian screamed, A hundred feet to go! Fezzik flew. He cleared his mind of everything but ropes and arms and fingers, and his arms pulled and his fingers gripped and the rope held tight and... He's over halfway, the Spaniard said. Halfway to doom is where he is, the Sicilian said. We're fifty feet from safety, and once we're there and I untied a rope, he allowed himself to laugh. <laughs> Forty feet. Fezzik pulled. Twenty. Ten. It was over. Fezzik had done it. They had reached the top of the cliffs, and first the Sicilian jumped off, and then the Turk removed the princess, and, as the Spaniard untied himself, he looked back over the cliffs. The man in black was no more than three hundred feet away. It seems a shame, the Turk said, looking down along the Spaniard. Such a climber deserves better than... He stopped talking then. The Sicilian had untied the rope from its knots around an oak. The rope seemed almost alive. The greatest of all water serpents heading at last for home. It whipped across the cliff tops, spiraled into the moonlit channel. The Sicilian was roaring now, and he kept at it until the Spaniard said, He did it. Did what? The humpback came scurrying to the cliff edge. Release the rope in time, the Spaniard said. See? He pointed down. The man in black was hanging in space, clinging to the sheer rock face, several hundred feet above the water. The Sicilian watched, fascinated. You know, he said, since I made a study of death and dying and I'm a great expert, it might interest you to know that he will be dead long before he hits the water. The fall will do it, not the crash. The man in black dangled helpless in space, clinging to the cliffs with both hands. Oh, how rude we're being, the Sicilian said then, turning to Buttercup. I'm sure you'd like to watch. He went to her and brought her, still tied hand and foot, so that she could watch the final pathetic struggle of the man in black 300 feet below. Buttercup closed her eyes, turned away. 
Shouldn't we be going? The Spaniard asked. I thought you were telling us how important time was. It is, it is. The Sicilian nodded. But I just can't miss a death like this. I can stage one of these every week and sell tickets. I can get out of the assassination business entirely. Look at him. Do you think his life is passing before his eyes? That's what the books say. He has very strong arms, Spezik commented, to hold on for so long. He can't hold on much longer, the Sicilian said. He has a fall soon. It was at that moment that the man in black began to climb. Not quickly, of course, and not without great effort, but still, there was no doubt that he was, in spite of the sheerness of the cliffs, heading in an upward direction. Inconceivable, the Sicilian cried. The Spaniard whirled on him. Stop saying that word. It was inconceivable that anyone could follow us, but when we looked behind, there was a man in black. It was inconceivable that anyone could sell as fast as we could sell, and yet he gained on us. Now this too is inconceivable, but look, look. And the Spaniard pointed down through the night. See how he rises. The man in black was indeed rising. Somehow, in some almost miraculous way, his fingers were finding holds in the crevices, and he was now perhaps 15 feet closer to the top, farther from death. The Sicilian advanced on the Spaniard now, his wild eyes glittering at the insubordination. I have the keenest mind that has ever been turned to unlawful pursuits, he began. So when I tell you something, it is not guesswork, it is fact. And the fact is that the man in black is not following us. A more logical explanation would be that he's simply an ordinary sailor who dabbles in mountain climbing as a hobby, who happens to have the same general final destination as we do. That certainly satisfies me, and I hope it satisfies you. In any case, we cannot take the risk of his seeing us with the princess, and therefore, one of you must kill him. Shall I do it? The Turk wondered. The Sicilian shook his head. No, Fezzik, he said finally. I need your strength to carry the girl. Pick her up now, and let us hurry along. He turned to the Spaniard. We'll be heading directly for the frontier of Gilder. Catch up as quickly as you can once he's dead. The Spaniard nodded. The Sicilian hobbled away. The Turk hoisted the princess, began following the humpback. Just before he lost sight of the Spaniard, he turned and hollered, Catch up quickly! Don't I always? The Spaniard waved. Farewell, Fezzik. Farewell, Inigo. The Turk replied. And then he was gone, and the Spaniard was alone. Anigo moved to the cliff edge and knelt with his customary quick grace. 250 feet below him now, the man in black continued his painful climb. Anigo lay flat, staring down, trying to pierce the moonlight and find the climber's secret. For a long while, Anigo did not move. He was a good learner, but not a particularly fast one, so he had to study. Finally, he realized that somehow, by some mystery... The man in black was making fists and jamming them into the rocks and using them for support. Then he would reach up with his other hand until he found a high split in the rock and make another fist and jam it in. Whenever he could find support for his feet, he would use it, but mostly it was the jammed fist that made the climbing possible. Anigo marveled. What a truly extraordinary adventurer this man in black must be. He was close enough for Inigo to realize the man was masked, a black hood covering all but his features. Another outlaw? Perhaps. 
Then why should they have to fight, and for what? Anigo shook his head. It was a shame that such a fellow must die, but he had his orders, so there it was. Sometimes, he did not like the Sicilian's commands, but what could he do? Without the brains of the Sicilian, he, Anigo, would never be able to command jobs of this caliber. The Sicilian was a master planner. Anigo was a creature of the moment. The Sicilian said kill him, so why waste sympathy on the man in black? Someday someone would kill Anigo, and the world would not stop to mourn. He stood now, quickly jumping to his feet, his blade-thin body ready for action. Only, the man in black was still many feet away. There was nothing to do but wait for him. Anigo hated waiting. So, to make the time more pleasant, he pulled from the scabbard his great, his only love. The Six-Fingered Sword How it danced in the moonlight, how glorious and true. Anigo brought it to his lips and with all the fervor in his great Spanish heart, kissed the metal. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on Spotify It only takes like a few seconds uh, Leave a review on Podchaser Copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts And copy and paste that into the Good Pods app You can donate to the show at Patreon.com slash Single Simulcast You can also donate to the show at BuyMeACoffee.com slash SSCast and on the Good Pods app, there's a tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I really do love this book, and I hope y'all love it too. Let me know what you think. Um, I'll holler at y'all later. Y'all be good. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.